Yale University Press podcast, and I'm Jessica Hollihan. I'm delighted to introduce my guest, Kim Sichel. Kim is Associate Professor of the History of Photography and Modern Art at Boston University. She is an authority on photographic history and European and American modernism. She's the author of numerous books, book chapters, articles, and exhibition catalogs. Her 1999 book, Germaine Krull, Photographer of Modernity, was a finalist for the Krasna Krauss Foundation Award for Best Photographic History Book. Her new book, just out, is Making Strange, the Modernist Photo Book in France. Making Strange is a beautiful book about an era of photo book production in France from the late 1920s through the late 1950s that witnessed avant-garde experiments in photography, text, design, and printing. Kim, thank you for being here to talk about your new book. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Let's start um, with the title, Making Strange, uh, which is eye-catching and fun, but I'm curious where it comes from and why it's a particularly appropriate title for a book about photo books in France in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, well, photo books during this period look unlike any other kind of book for to start with. So they're strange proportions, strange designs, uh, very eye-catching in lots of ways that we'll talk about. Um, and they also reflect cultural uneasiness in general during the first years that this book covers, uh, going all the way back to the sociologist Georg Simmel, who wrote about the metropolis and mental life in the early years of the 20th century and how... Um, rapid oncoming impressions are very disruptive, and that's the psychological conditions of the metropolis. Um, and then in film montage in the 20s, lots of people are writing about the fact that in modern life you put two images together and they smash together and make a third image emerge out of that. And then even in surrealism, uh, there's a notion of the uncanny um, in plumbing the subconscious. So there are a lot, and detective stories do the same thing, looking for strange details and hidden corners. Um, so it reflects the style of the books, and it also reflects the cultural unease and cacophony of the time in an interesting way. So the, the chapters in the book are organized chronologically, starting with the book Metal by Germaine Krull, which was originally published in 1928. In the first sentence of that chapter, you call the book groundbreaking. Um, tell us about what made it so groundbreaking, both as a physical specimen and in terms of what it depicted and how. Okay, so it's groundbreaking as a physical specimen because it is a collection of metal industrial fragments that are not identifiable. They're not named, they're not labeled, and the book's not bound. So it's a series of disconnected pages which spill out. You can rearrange them however you want. The pages turn from right to left, up to down. So it's a whole new way of looking at a topic rather than in any kind of a logical fashion. Um, it's a very beautiful uh, book like none other, and it was really groundbreaking. It was written up in the press 
all over France and Germany during those years. So that's one uh, thing that's really groundbreaking about it. The second thing is that in cultural terms, it kind of reflects a moment of the late 1920s when France is finally back on its feet starting to rebuild an industrial country and an industry of metalworking um, and recovering from World War I, which was unbelievably traumatic with uh, 1.35 million people dead in France. Um, uh, the United States only had 116,000 people die during World War I. So um, it's a way of rebuilding something that's joyful um, and lyrical and a celebration of the industry they're trying to rebuild at the time. Do you know whether the decision to have it be this loose folio of sheets, which is a really wild idea for a mm -hmm. book, mm -hmm. was uh, the photographers or was it a collaborative decision with the publisher? Or? Uh, my guess is it's probably the press because that press uh, that published this book, um, Caleva, had done a whole series of similar portfolio kinds of uh, projects dating all the way back to 1920. Uh, one was a collection of African textiles and again there'd be loose leaves with a binding that you could tie up. Um, so it's part of a, of a kind of a publishing style that they were interested in. And the photographs were numbered? Or the photographs were numbered, yeah. 1 through 64, 62, something like that. And uh, But they're not bound together. So if right. you wanted to, you could show them backwards or upside down or just show one series of images. And none of them have a title that says this is the Eiffel Tower, this is the Rotterdam Bridge. We now know that after lots of research, but at the time when you read the book, there was no way to tell what you were looking at except that it was dancing metal forms. Right. And they're beautiful. They're absolutely beautiful. They are. Um, the book moves then to a discussion of Paris de Nuit by Brassailles, which was published in 1932 and which had, by the end of 1933, sold some 12,000 copies. Mm -hmm. What about that book made it resonate so strongly and sell so well? Well, I think the mid-1930s is a moment when the Depression had finally hit in France. And so um, that's uh, the unease about that period is reflected in a huge fascination with detective crime fiction and there's a big long tradition of photography by night in Paris. You start wandering around Paris in the evening after the opera and you end up eating onion soup in Leal at 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, but Ressai managed to translate that into a very graphic, very sensuous, velvety black kind of physical language in his book. Um, and I think people who were thinking about the Depression, thinking about detective stories, thinking about the discomfort of the Depression in France really responded to that book very strongly. Looking at the images in the book, it, it, um, it's easy to see how you can almost bring your own state of mind at any given point in time to interpreting the images, which mm -hmm. can either seem sort of um, ominous and mm -hmm. not, not quite frightening, but you, know, mm -hmm. you feel alone in a lot of them mm -hmm. and it's dark, or they're just uh, quite appealing, actually, mm -hmm. and they want to actually be strolling the cobblestones of Paris right. in the dark. Right. Well, the book, that particular book is held together with a spiral binding, like a notebook today, but it was the height of fashion in the 1930s. So when you look at it, um, there's no white around the edges of the pages at all. Mm -hmm. the, the black of the cobblestones or the underside of a bridge or whatever dark thing that Bressai is trying to show you spills right off the page. So it's very... Um, 
It's very appealing in a, in a kind of a visceral way when you hold the object of the book. Um, but the subjects themselves are the same. And for instance, there's a picture of the Arc de Triomphe, one of the first pictures of the book, which is, you know, the height of Western wealthy Paris. But it's shown at night. It's shown with shadows that break through cracks visually through the fabric of the stone. And then coming across... Uh, past in front of the Arc de Triomphe is the vegetable train heading back to eastern working-class Paris to Leal to the vegetable market. Um, so you have in Grassi's intersection of images, his interest in sort of showing the contrasts. She'll often show the underside of a bridge, not the top side of a, an avenue. So he seemed to have a sympathy for the underdog and for the homeless person, the mm -hmm. clochard. You talk about um, the photogravure process for printing the images. Mm -hmm. What what was that exactly, and was it new to to this period of time? Or it's not strictly new, but what it has um, in terms of design, it's a very inky process. Um, so if you look at a photogravure. Uh, book, the, the black actually comes off on your hands. It's so thick and mm. velvety. Um, and most of the most beautiful books printed in the interwar period are printed in gravure. Um, there's a switch to offset lithography by the 50s or 60s, but these very beautiful books and the, the kind of velvety quality of the blacks in the ink is something that gravure does better than anything else. So it's relatively new during those periods, and most of the beautiful books used it, especially Brassai's book. Mm -hmm. uh, Cruel's is collotype. It's a different kind of printing, but the others are gravure. And it's a, and the, exist, the copies that still exist that were printed then maintain that quality of... The, yes. Yeah. Yes. If you, if you touch those books, you get a little black on your fingers. Um, the, in the chapter, you also tell a story uh, about Paris de Nuit that involves you personally. Will you share that with us? Oh. Uh, when I was many years ago working on my dissertation and researching um, a number of photographers in France, I was looking for the lost negatives for Paris de Nuit. Brassai published that book in the early 1930s and never recovered his negatives. So the backs of any print that you see from the period says in Brassai's hand, um, the original uh, negative of this has been sold, stolen or has been lost. This is the only surviving print. Um, so I was digging in the basement of a press called Flammarion who had bought the older press, Art Graphique, which had published Paris de Nuit in the first place. And in the basement, I found um, boxes and boxes of things, including the photographs for uh, a second book called Paris du jour, Paris by day, by Roger Charles, and the original prints were there, which made me hopeful that maybe there were archives somewhere. And then I learned that there was a photographer studio in the attic, which was still acting as a photographic studio for the new press. And I climbed up all the stairs and I looked in the attic and pile, you know, rows and rows and rows of yellow boxes of negatives. And there up on the top shelf was a little box that said Brassai, Paris de nuit, and those were the negatives. And I was able to restore them to the photographer before he died. That is marvelous. Yeah. It was really a great moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the third chapter, the third mm -hmm. book you discuss in detail is La Mort et les Statues, mm -hmm. Death and the Statues, mm -hmm. um, by Pierre Zahran, who which was published in 1946 mm -hmm. after World War II, mm -hmm. uh, but consisted of photographs that he took during the war. Uh, and they're accompanied by texts by Jean Cocteau. Um, can you 
describe the images in the book, um, some of them anyway, and talk about how it navigated the tension between, on the one hand, war and suffering, mm -hmm. and on the other hand, poetry, art, and beauty. Um, so the narrow topic of this book is um, pictures that Pierre Jean took in a, on a December morning in 1941 of some of the bronze statues in Paris being melted down for German ammunition. Um, and there's a much larger story behind all of that, which statues were chosen, why they were made. And um, the photographs themselves let the, f the statues stand in for physical human death. So you see statues of public figures like Marat or Condorcet that have been pulled off of their pedestals, statues of alligators from the Place de la République um, that are headed for the smelter, and um, the marks of wear on those statues as they're being hauled off and destroyed. Um, and Paris had been under occupation from September, uh, June of 1940 until August of 1944 when people really couldn't publish books freely in France. And after the war ended, um, this book was republished and it became a kind of a universal lament. It was not that well known at the time. Uh, there were other books which are with a wider publication. But the combination of a poetic commentary on war and the sense that um, – a bronze statue that's collapsing and has a, its stomach staved through can stand in for the deaths of the concentration camps or the deaths of the atomic bombs in Japan um, was a very resonant poetic commentary uh, right after the war. And uh, there's a sense that it could be both an immediate and a more universal lament about war. Yeah, that one of the images from that book is on the cover of your mm -hmm. book. And even if you don't know any of the backstory, yeah. um, I mean, the, the sense of anguish that it conveys mm -hmm. is just palpable. I mean, it really is a pretty tremendous. And the, and the image is one of these reptilian. This is an alligator from the Place de la République yeah. clawing up in agony as it is going under the wheel of the smelter's shop. Right. Yeah. It's right. quite powerful, the composition of these photographs. Yeah. Um, and moving on from the 1950s, um, you delve into several publications by Henri Cartier-Bresson, starting with his 1952 book, Image à la Sauvette, or as it was published in English, The Decisive Moment, and subsequently its follow-up, The Europeans, as well as later books, Dune Chine à l'autre and Moscou. And the title of that chapter is mm -hmm. Nostalgia. Can mm -hmm. you tell us about the role that Cartier-Bresson's books play in your story about these decades of modernist photo bookmaking and why nostalgia is important in that context? Um, okay. I think in some ways The Decisive Moment was the most famous photo book of the mid-century period when Cartier-Bresson published it in 1952. Um, and people have talked about that book and looked about that book a great deal. But what I think is interesting is to think about the fact that it is published by a photographer who had been a prisoner of war during World War II. He had tried to escape three times. He finally escaped. Um, he was a founding member of Magnum. He's beginning to um, photograph all around the world. He's the Magnum correspondent for Asia. And the book is divided into two halves. One is about his pre-war European work and the other is about his post-war Oriental. He calls it Lorient himself. Um, uh, Asian work, uh, and he's framing the European past as something 
very personal, very engaging, very interactive, um, all about the lost culture of that period, which many people in France and across Europe were trying to refine after the end of the war. And then the second half of the book is framing the Asian countries that he photographed after World War II when he was a magnum photographer um, in a very beautiful, elegant, but slightly more distancing way that makes them look as if they're safely framed within a kind of a construction. So um, I think that this book tries to make a kind of an argument that the way of the European way of life is hugely powerful, even if it's a memory rather than present day. And that's where the term nostalgia is coming from. Mm -hmm. Is that how it was received at the time? It's received at the time more as an important monograph by the great photographer Cartier-Bresson. Mm. So that kind of larger uh, cultural uh, analysis of thinking about it as a, as a mirror of its decade is something I think we can see now right. a little bit more um, clearly. Cartier-Bresson was a very famous photographer in the 1950s. And so it was a little bit that he was seen as this major figure um, without – at that time, critics didn't look so deeply into the larger historical meanings. Right. Well, and, and you know, this, the whole period of time, the late 20s to the late 50s, mm-hmm. um, represents this golden age of photo book production in France. You write in your book that French photo books dominated the public discourse of photography from mm-hmm. 1928 to 1958. But your book is really the first to take a careful look at a range of books that define that place and time. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? I've always wondered that, actually. It's really an interesting problem. I think Americans look more often at American books. So books like Robert Frank's The Americans or Walker Evans's American Photographs are much – people think about them more. Um, and then there are groups of images that were really seminal in other countries, groups of books, uh, German photo books. Those are a little bit better known in the United States because lots of people came from the Bauhaus who were involved with those books to the United States, to Harvard, to the Institute of Technology in Illinois, to Black Mountain College. And that became a little bit more um, popular. Uh, And Japanese photo books had a moment from the 1960s where they were very um, popular in the United States. Uh, So it's always been really interesting to me that these books are not better understood. If you talk to most major photographers from the mid-century period, they all know these books, but they might not have thought about them. So, you know, they're photographers who remember seeing Versailles Paris de Nuit or Metal. Um, So I'm hoping to bring that period back into the forefront. You know, if you look at somebody like Robert Frank or you look at somebody like Walker Evans, they were looking at these books as they were young photographers learning their their trade. Those are the books that really influenced them. Yeah, and, and you do you do highlight some of the ways that these books have been um, both internationally and enduringly influential as mm-hmm. photo books have, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the locus of photo book production has sort of shifted around the world. And I think remember exactly, but most, if not all, of the books you talk about here have been reprinted. In yeah, the, it's interesting. They the other thing about these books more than the Japanese books are an exception, but more than any of the other books, they have an extraordinarily creative graphic design and they have an extraordinarily creative series of shapes and uh, 
functions, lettering. Um, so it's an intersection of graphic design and the design of the book and the text and the image um, much more creatively than the German books, for instance. And I think people are starting to get more interested in that. Photo book collectors um, maybe drive that a little bit. Uh, so The Decisive Moment is only published in 2015. Um, Paris was republished in the late 80s after the negatives were recovered. Um, Metal was republished about 15 years ago. Um, and um, there have been several republications of Jean's book, La Mort et les Statues. I think it has a larger afterlife than its life when it was first made. So it's interesting. They're coming back and being really thought about now much yeah. more than they were. So they're, they're reentering the discourse for photographers, for book collectors, and for historians. They, they reflect different moments of history in, in the mid-20th century in very interesting ways, I think. Well, thank you for helping us figure out how to think about them. <laughs> it's um, been a pleasure. Thank yeah. you. And thanks for coming. Thanks for joining me. The book we've been discussing is Making Strange, the modernist photo book in France by Kim Sichel. It can be purchased at bookstores and online. Thank you for checking out this podcast. Please visit us online at yalebooks.com to keep up with the whole podcast series as well as the latest from our blog and our authors.